All right, so our topic tonight is self-forgiveness. Two weeks ago I was here and gave a talk on forgiveness generally. And now I want to talk about self-forgiveness specifically. Um, forgiveness is hard, it's challenging. Someone called forgiveness the ultimate spiritual pull-up bar. Like it's not, it's not necessarily an easy practice. However, the experts such as Desmond and Mafo Tutu and um, Dr. Fred Luskin of the Stanford Forgiveness Project and many others teach that the reward of, of forgiveness is inner peace, spaciousness, ease, well-being. And the opposite is true too, that non-forgiveness um, creates contraction in the body, stress, resentment that has all sorts of health implications, among other things. So forgiveness is a worthy pursuit. The Buddha taught uh, patience and forgiveness as uh, similar, similar practices to help us become less reactive or even non-reactive to imperfection and to difficulty, the dukkha, the challenge of life rather than reacting with the pushing away, the natural reactivity, to rather to practice tolerance and patience. And of course, adding to that the modern day language of boundaries. I recently read in a uh, newsletter from Dr. Rick Hansen, who many of you know, um, Buddhist teacher and uh, neuroscientist. Um, I read that his one of his favorite definitions for the word boundary is the distance I, from which the distance or the space that I need in order to love someone. And so f finding some kind of space that, that works so that we can really be there for others. So boundaries are an important part of forgiveness too. Um, and yet it's difficult. And, and Difficult as it is to forgive others, many people find that the hardest person for us to forgive is ourself. Not all of us have that issue, but many people do because we are in there inside ourselves, and we have, we hold the memories and the awarenesses and the, we see the mistakes and the flaws and so forth. So, um, finding self-forgiveness to be very challenging if that's your experience is really common. I want to share um, some just one definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness does not change the past but it does enlarge the future. That's Paul Boise. Meaning that when we set down that uh, shell of protective armor around the heart that is non-forgiveness when we feel willing to make the choice to set it down. The spaciousness that we have makes our present and future moments um, more peaceful, makes us more resilient. So regarding self-forgiveness, I want to talk about as I've been studying this, which I have because I've been all through the month of January, I've been teaching uh, on the 
topic of forgiveness with these two Wednesday women's groups that I lead. Um, so I've been studying a lot about forgiveness all month and specifically recently about self-forgiveness. As I studied about it, I realized for myself that it's really important to discern what is it that I'm not forgiving myself for specifically. And as we begin to think, and I want to invite you as, I, as I'm talking tonight, I want you to begin to think, are there things that you haven't or don't forgive yourself for? And if so, what are they? And getting really clear about that, not being vague, but really becoming more clear about where are the places where I really won't let myself off the hook, where I really feel like non-forgiveness is more appropriate than forgiveness towards self. And part of the reason that it's helpful to begin to discern is that I find that there are two different kind of ways non-forgiveness can get activated in the self that require two different responses. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. But first, I'm going to just dis describe the different ways that we can maybe not forgive ourselves. So one is if we have harmful behaviors or habits, habits that we know don't serve us or that undermine our well-being, but that for whatever reason, we'd keep doing. Usually we keep doing them because they allow us, like procrastination, for example, allows us in the short term to avoid an unpleasant task. Or overeating, another example, is a, a, a maybe an unpleasant habit that stays in place because it allows us short-term gratification. So some of the things that we don't forgive ourselves for are those kinds of things. Reactivity, quick to anger, conflict avoidance, all of our addictions. These are the kinds of things that we might uh, hold ourselves in non-forgiveness around and wish that we were different. And related to that is a, is a more, even a more vague, um, a, a more vague sense of not good enough and not forgiving ourselves for being imperfect humans. We can have, because of the mind's capacity to imagine, we can have some idea of how we think we should be and, and a, some sort of constant sense of not living up to that imagined standard. So we withhold self-acceptance or self-forgiveness as though withholding self-forgiveness will allow us to improve. There's a lot of belief in our culture around um, holding on to non-forgiveness so that we'll improve, so that we're motivated to change. So these first two where, we're, where we don't forgive ourselves for habits of our own that we don't like or we don't forgive us with, for ourselves for a general sense of not being good enough are in one category of non-self-forgiveness. And then the other is when we recall doing something that we have some genuine remorse over, when we recall having caused harm to someone else, typically. 
having done something that really put us out of alignment with our general values. And so what I want to offer is that second category, when we have a recollection of having done something that we have genuine remorse over, that we put, put us out of alignment with our values, that those, that those things in our psyche, they, from what I understand from everything that I've read, they require um, taking responsibility and they require an amends making of some kind. They require compassionate action. This can be quite courageous depending on, you know, who you who you are dealing with when you're thinking about um, taking responsibility and making amends it's brave to go in and feel the feelings again and really feel the remorse and it's brave to take the action of an amends making either directly with the person that we've harmed or um, if that person is not safe for us or if they are no longer alive some other form of amends and I the, the other category is all in the realm of straight up self-compassion. And I'm going to explain why. And then I'm going to talk about some ways to do this with these two different practices. But it does require discernment to know what's going on with us. Why are we in non-forgiveness? Is it because we're imperfect? And we're mad at ourselves for that? Or is it because we notice or remember and remember an act that feels out of alignment with our values? And whichever, in whichever case it is, or both, you know, it can be a number of things, um, self-forgiveness holds the promise of bringing us peace and more peace. So I'm going to share, share a story this is a story from a um, woman who was a worked in a hospice, volunteered at a hospice. Charlotte was often anxious or depressed, and as she neared death, she was increasingly mute due to the tumor growing in her throat. One morning when I arrived, I found her distraught from a nightmare. She had dreamed that the staff told her she had only three days to live. Her voice, weak and raspy, Charlotte insisted that she wasn't ready, she couldn't die yet. She had something important to say to her husband first. Much to my astonishment, three days later, Charlotte was packed and about to go home. The staff told me her tumor had shrunk dramatically. The next time I visited, Charlotte had returned. She seemed deeply at peace. Here's what she shared with me as close to her words as I can recall. I was angry at my husband on his case all through our years together. His work and tennis always came before me. He was too permissive with our kids. He was always intellectualizing but couldn't express his feelings, couldn't fix things around the house. And the list goes on. After 20 some years of our marriage, he became too close with another woman. He was honest about it and didn't sleep with her 
but I never got over it. I guess I already felt rejected. Even from early days, I couldn't forgive him for not making me feel special. What I saw was a guy who was letting me down, not on my side. I forgot his basic decency and care. It wasn't until that dream that I realized I needed to tell him I loved him, that I regretted nothing more in my whole life than how my judgments drove us apart. So I told him and he listened. He shared some of his own regrets and when we hugged, we both had tears streaming down our face. It was the first closeness we'd had in years. Now I'm ready to go. So this is a, a brief story of duress, under duress, the possibility of turning toward what we're not forgiving in ourselves and others. And when we do that footwork around the work, the the compassionate action of self-forgiveness, the peace that can follow, the ease, the spaciousness that can follow. So I have a great deal more to say tonight, but before I do, I want to lead us right off the bat in a practice from Tara Brack, Brock, a self-forgiveness scan. She calls this a self-forgiveness scan. And, um, it's a practice it's very brief but it's a practice that can can allow us to kind of touch into that potential piece of self-forgiveness so this is from tara even when we're not overtly at war with ourselves we often move through the day judging ourselves for the ways we feel we're falling short this practice brings our self-judgments into awareness so they can be seen and released. It's an especially cleansing way to end the day. Try it when you're lying in bed before you go to sleep. Take some moments now to become still and to relax any obvious areas of tension. And take a few long, slow breaths to help you arrive fully in your body. And now ask yourself, is there anything between me and being at home with myself? And feel free to change the wording in any way that helps you identify the presence of self-blame. Is there anything between me and being at home with myself? Then pause and see what comes up in your body and mind. What stories of wrongdoing have you been telling yourself? Stories of letting others down, of performing poorly at work, of not meeting your standards as a parent, partner, friend, human being.
If something arises, simply acknowledge it and offer it forgiveness. You might gently place your hand on your heart and whisper, forgiven, forgiven. Or it's okay. Sense into an intention not to push yourself out of your own heart. Then inquire again. Is there anything else you're holding against yourself? Forgiven. Forgiven. Continue in this way until you've identified whatever self-judgments you've been carrying. And end the scan with a wish for your own peace of heart and mind. May I hold myself in kindness. May I hold myself in kindness. That's where we're heading with self-forgiveness, to make a decision to forgive ourselves and to come back to it. Um, so I want to go now into more of the differentiating these two kind of areas of self-forgiveness. When there is, when we've discerned, when we've thought about what we want to forgive ourselves for and we realize there are things we've done that we regret that uh, we feel remorse over that is that is something innate in, to us that the Buddha recognized as uh, sort of the the bell of con conscience and respect for others and it won't stop ringing its little quiet little sound until we address it so that's one area and then the other area is when we're when we're you know holding this cultural conditioning that we have in the west in a capitalistic culture where 
we have been sold a bill of goods about um, a need to improve and this sense that perfection is possible and that's a whole other different voice that gets activated that's the voice of the inner critic both processes require self-compassion and both processes require perseverance neither of these is something that we can move through quickly unfortunately but the first one where we sense there's something we have remorse over um, is hugely helped by making amends as best as we can. And this process of recognizing that remorse is present and needing to take some compassionate action, um, at the root of that are some, well, they're universal concepts, but in Buddhism they're called Hiri and Otapa. So in Buddhism, it's, it's, there's a very clear, very direct, very unambiguous link between well-being and integrity. We really, there is no other way to happiness, according to the Buddha, than having an ethical um, life that is in touch with compassion and generosity that we we must have those things in order to move toward freedom wholesome action leads to well-being and there are many many teachings about specifically how to do this with precepts and paramis and many teachings the inner qualities that the buddha recognized that are we that are there to kind of help guide us towards wholesome actions are the two bright qualities that protect the world, as he described them, hiri, or conscience, and otapa, or respect for others. And I imagine that these things which are innate to us, or most of us, um, I imagine that they're part of our tend and befriend system, part of how we evolved as herd animals, and we, in order to you know, collaborate and, and raise our young and, and create and get food and share it and all that thing. I imagine we needed these qualities of conscience and respect for others in order to stay functional in groups. And we still do. Unfortunately, the voices, the inner voices of conscience and respect for others can be drowned out by the conditioning of the larger culture which teaches that happiness is fulfilled through uh, essentially greed hatred and delusion but they're there those voices are there and we can feel them and if we're out of alignment with our values our integrity they keep on letting us know and they can keep on letting us know that something's a little out of alignment for years <laughs> and so it's never too late to listen. These voices are then very different from the loud voice of the inner critic. They are gentle and compassionate, but they're persistent. So a little more about them. So here, conscience, also we could call it self-respect, 
personal sense of ethical integrity or a moral compass, our intuitive understanding of what's right and wrong, what's appropriate and what isn't. It is not a severe critic. It's a soft, caring, whispering in our ear and guiding us through our lives with courage and compassion. And this language comes from a Buddhist teacher named Andrew Ostensky. Here he is, not a severe critic, but a soft, caring voice whispering in our ear and guiding us through our lives with courage and compassion. Otapa is the elemental force of caring for others and respecting their concern. A translation from one of the Buddha suttas about Hiryanotapa says, to be ashamed of what of performing evil and unwholesome things, this is called conscience or hiri. To be in dread of performing evil and unwholesome things, this is called respect for others or otapa. We can take a quick glance at the world and know that the voices of hiri and otapa are um, not accessed by many folks but that doesn't mean they're not there. And the wonderful thing about them is that when we do access them, and we access them and we are willing to listen to them and follow their lead, they can lead us to this willingness to take action, to experience self-forgiveness and the peace that comes with it. Going through a process to help us restore our sense of having done what we can and then moving back into the well-being that comes from being a good person who is human and flawed and makes mistakes and sometimes really significant mistakes or really frightful mistakes. But we've learned from them and we will not repeat them and we've done what we can. So the process around these kinds of transgressions for self-forgiveness is described by various teachers in various ways. The one that I want to bring to us tonight is a process that has been uh, formalized in the acronym REACH, R-E-A-C-H. And I'm just going to give you a little tip of the iceberg on this process now. And if for any reason this is something that speaks to you, you can easily Google this and there's a free 69 page PDF process that you can walk through um, the reach, the self-forgiveness process. So the R of reach is that the is the first piece of taking responsibility and taking action. Recall and take responsibility for your hurtful acts. And so recalling the hurt, allowing yourself to feel it rather than numb it out or ignore it or distract from it, that's part of that. And, and then being willing to take responsibility and then going through some kind of amends process. That all lands up in the R of reach. 
Another aspect of the R of REACH is what's called attitudinal forgiveness, um, where we just are making a decision to go through this process. We're taking time, we're taking energy, we're, we're doing something that the Buddha asks us to do anyway, but, but it's not natural to us as humans, which is to turn toward the pain, turn toward it, and, and then work with it in order to um, eventually get to self-forgiveness. It's all in the R of reach. And then the rest of the letters are about the next, the second part of self-forgiveness, which is emotional forgiveness, where we actually have to just work with our systems to replace the self-blaming voices, the sense of contraction that, you know, comes with remorse and regret. And we have to actively work with that using compassion, a different kind of more internal compassionate action. So the E of reach is to emotionally replace unforgiveness with self-empathy. So that requires mindfulness. We're aware in a moment that non-forgiveness is present and to bring in compassion. And there are a variety of strategies for self-compassion. One, one that is um, used now in the whole self-compassion, mindful self-compassion movement is soothing touch, bringing hand to heart, and then soothing language, may I hold myself in kindness. Or even this process of that we just did, you know, just remembering the language of forgiven forgiven. The A of reach is choosing to make an altruistic gift of self-forgiveness. So in other words, we see that having done our footwork to repair as best we can, that self-forgiveness is an act of generosity. It's initially an act of generosity to ourselves. And it has far-reaching implications in our lives because when we're able to genuinely forgive ourselves, we're more open with others, more open in the world, more loving, more connective, less shame-driven and shame-bound. So we think of, this is true of forgiving others as well, but we think of self-forgiveness as a decision we're making, as an act of generosity, an altruistic act, an act of integrity, choosing self-forgiveness, choosing to come from love rather than hate. So that's the A. And then the C of reach. So we have recall and take responsibility. Emotionally is the E, emotionally replace unforgiveness with self-empathy. The A is the making that choice, the altruistic gift of self-forgiveness. And then the C is once we've had a moment of, you know, having made that choice, commit to the forgiveness you experience. And you can solidify it with a ceremony or a ritual. Write yourself a letter, light a candle and you know, sing, let somebody else you love know that this has happened, but um, committing to the forgiveness and then 
the last one, H, is to hold on to the self-forgiveness when you doubt that it's real, which unfortunately happens because we've established habits of non-forgiveness in our minds. And those are just neural firings like all our habits are. They, they keep mental habits just keep showing up. We know this well, how thoughts can be. They show up whether they're welcome or not. And that's the same with non-forgiveness. And so we may have gone through this very elaborate process of, you know, facing into it, taking responsibility, practicing self-compassion, committing to the forgiveness. And then there it is in the mind as though nothing has changed. That's mind habit. And with all of these mind habits that no longer serve us, whether it's non-forgiveness or simply negative thinking of any sort, we need to use mindfulness to notice and name it and then wisely replace it. And again, you can go with forgiven, forgiven, or language like may I hold myself in kindness or loving kindness phrases, may we be safe, may we be peaceful. But finding some language to remind the mind that we're moving, we're moving to another track now, folks, is the H of reach. So that is the process that's, that's being recommended by many uh, current day psychologists and uh, neuroscientists to help with forgiveness generally and self-forgiveness specifically. But what about when we're withholding ourselves from the peace of self-forgiveness because we are waiting for that day when we are no longer imperfect? So I fall into that category a lot. And I have to tell you, if you do too ever, we are not ever going to stop waiting to be free from being imperfect because imperfection is part of the deal here. We're not ever going to be perfect. We're not ever going to stop making mistakes. When I was a kid, there was a, on Sesame Street, maybe some of you remember this too, there was a song that I now think is, is a is a great spiritual lesson there there are several children's songs like that this is one of them it goes everyone makes mistakes so yes they do your sister and your brother and your dad and mother too big folks small folks matter of fact all folks everyone makes mistakes so why can't you and that's the question, you know, not everybody suffers from perfectionism, but those of us who do are waiting for us ourselves to stop making ridiculous mistakes. Uh, we need a reframe because that's our only hope. We're not going to become perfect. We're going to continue to make mistakes. We're going to continue to be flawed. We're going to continue to have challenges that's part of the deal. The Buddha talked about the three characteristics of, ex of existence and a uh, colloquial translation of those is everything is impermanent, everything is imperfect, 
and everything's impersonal. Imperfect's the middle one. So part of self-forgiveness has to come from releasing perfectionism. It is quite possible to, in a short order too, well, this isn't something that has to take years, it's quite possible to let go of the myth of perfectionism and learn to bring in lots of love and self-compassion to our flawed selves. And that is sometimes what's needed in place of what we think is self-forgiveness. And sometimes, you know, really, you, you can replace the word forgiveness with the words loving acceptance. And it's really the same thing. And this is a quote from a group participant of mine some time ago. Sometimes we get going through life and we forget that we're one among many. We are all worthy of love. We don't have many external reminders in our culture of this. There's no product to be sold with that reminder. There's no capitalistic investment in being okay as you are. The critical voice emerges when I'm struggling anyway. Already something's going wrong or is challenging or is not feeling right. And then the critic comes in on top of that. It's true for a lot of people. It's like in some really twisted way, the mind is trying to make things better. But to me, it just feels like decompensating, like I'm going to throw fuel on the fire. So we have this conditioning. And part of our hard work has got to be to, to, to discern what of, this, of these beliefs that we have from our culture serve us and which ones don't, and to work to shed the ones that don't, and again, replace them with love and care. I want to read you a fairly long passage from a Zen teacher who I love named Sherry Huber. Highly recommend her work. She's written many books. C-H-E-R-I, Huber, H-U-B-E-R. Adopting the belief that you must be perfect is the perfect setup for self-hate. Not wanting to be how you are is one of the most significant aspects of self-hate. Those who feel completely loved are not selfish, they're loving. There's a small child inside each of us who is taught to believe that bad things happen or will happen because the child is bad. As adults, when we become aware of this child, we are saddened and we feel the child's sadness. We're conditioned to try to stop the sadness, to move away from the experience. The child doesn't need for us to do that. They need to know deep down inside that it's absolutely all right to be having that experience. The child needs complete acceptance for however they are in each moment. And we as adults do too. That's what we didn't get when we were little. Acceptance for however we are in whatever moment. The only response is compassion. Trying to stop, fix, or change is part of the self-hating process. We do not need to be beaten, punished, disciplined, chastised, berated, and belittled, and we never did. 
It takes courage and patience and faith in our inherent goodness. Painful things come up not to ruin our lives, not to make us miserable, not to spoil our good time. They come up to be healed, to be embraced in compassion. If the voice inside you is telling you that what you're doing is wrong, what you did was wrong, and what you're going to do will be wrong, using a system like that to stay safe is like the cure being worse than the disease. When you don't hate yourself, you don't want to mistreat yourself. The answer is compassion, no matter what. If something's happening, all I have to do is be willing to acknowledge that, and that is accepting it. It's not as if my acceptance or non-acceptance can change whether it happens or not. When you're willing to acknowledge and accept, to let everything come into the light of day, self-hate no longer has any power over you. If I could have compassion for hating myself, I would no longer be hating myself, I'd be loving myself, and nothing about me would need to change. Learn to be present. Practice hearing the voices in your head without becoming involved and without judgment. And take it on faith that any voice, internal or external, that is saying something is wrong with you is not the voice of your heart, is not the voice of your true nature. So there are these, you know, there's these voices of like Hiri and Otapa that we, that are, they're, they're compassionate and, and re request of us out of love to take compassionate action. And that's, even though they may seem similar, it's the exact opposite of the loud voices of the critic that just tell us we're wrong no matter what. And so there's two different responses that are needed. We need to be able to discern what's going on in there. If it's here in Otapa that are talking to us, we need to take responsibility. Out of love, though, not out of blame. Out of love for ourselves and our, 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 our desire for peace. If the voice that we're hearing is the something's wrong with you, not good enough voice that's not forgiving, that's the voice of the inner critic. And like Sherry Huber says in the piece that I just shared with you, we can turn directly toward that voice and say, hey there, <laughs> I'm here with you. I'm compassion. I care. I'm listening. I'm curious. Mindfulness, Sati, mindfulness, when mindfulness is present, and it has this natural mindfulness itself, loving awareness is the turning toward experience. When we turn toward experience, the voice of Hiryo and Otapa can be heard. The voice of that inner moral compass can be heard. The voice of compassion can be heard. So just to close my talk, and then we can have Q&A, and, and if we have time, I have one more practice to share with you tonight as well. But I wanted to let you know, just making the point about 
compassion being the answer no matter what. There was recently a study done on hundreds of college students who procrastinated on their homework. And they all procrastinated on this one thing and, and hundreds of them were interviewed and they were divided into two groups. The group, those who forgave themselves for procrastinating and those who did not, who did not forgive themselves for procrastinating. And that's all that they were divided. And then they were tracked after that. And the next homework assignment came up and they were tracked in that. And what the researchers found is that there were significant results. Those who forgave themselves for procrastinating on the first homework assignment were much less likely to procrastinate on the next homework assignment than those who did not forgive themselves. So we utilize what in Buddhism is called second arrow strategies. There's already something going wrong. I procrastinated on my homework assignment and I didn't get it in on time. And then a bunch of those young people use that second arrow strategy of non-self-forgiveness. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm such a jerk. I procrastinated. Of course, I don't forgive myself. Why would I? That was such a stupid thing to do. Yada, yada, yada. Second arrow strategy. And then there were a group of kids who procrastinated on their homework and held that in compassion. Well, I, you know, I made a mistake, maybe not my best interest, but hey, it's okay. I, I didn't get any sleep the night before and you know, it's all right. Those kids had more sort of resilience, more capacity to show up for themselves in a self-advocating loving way by getting their next homework assignment in on time. We mistakenly utilize non-forgiveness and imagining that it's protecting us or it's motivating us and what it's actually doing is paralyzing us it's not actually helping it's adding you know salt to the wound is what it's doing if we need to be protected we need to set a boundary we don't need non-forgiveness if we need to change a habit we need to change that habit from a place of self-love, not self-hate. And self-forgiveness is part of that self-love process. And that really benefits everyone we're with. Is that story I shared at the beginning, the woman who came to the end of her life, touched into uh, self-forgiveness and forgiveness of her partner was able to communicate that and then had the peace that comes from forgiveness. Okay, so thank you for your attention. Appreciate it. Any, right now, any questions or comments, clarifications? How did that land for you?
Okay. Oh, great. Steve. Yes. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to thank you. I mean, you, you always give us such wonderfully um, practical talks. And, you know, I was typing notes all along the way. And we'll look at the uh, recording in a few days to fill the gaps. I just love how uh, what you shared tonight, was, again, was so practical and so user-friendly and so clear and really, really helpful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm really taking that in and I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Steve. Carol. Um, you are still muted. There you go. How so how do you get from self-hatred to self-love? Well, our practices. So mindfulness helps a lot with that. You know, coming, turning toward with non-judgmental awareness, turning toward experience really helps with moving from self-judgment to self-love. And then specifically the four Brahmaviharas, um, loving kindness practice, may I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be healthy, may I be at ease. Compassion, turn toward self is self-compassion hand on heart or belly or another soothing place. May I hold myself in kindness. May I accept myself as I am. Joy, the third of the four Brahma Viharas, deliberately cultivating gratitude as a different track for the mind than its habitual negative thinking. So deliberately looking for and naming, like using your fingers to name 10 things that we're grateful for actually changes brain electricity and brings in more Ah, spaciousness. And then also the practice of equanimity or acceptance. But I have to say, I mean, I can't possibly <laughs> do justice to the journey of self-love in a, in a quick answer to a question. Um, and that has, Carol, just like you, that's been my, like, one of my central spiritual inquiries how if we're conditioned towards self-hatred do we make that u-turn and move into self-love it really is for me about the brahma viharas but having said that to you and to us here <coughs> it's a deep dive into the brahma viharas i have some talks many people do i mean there's all different kinds of ways to access that but it's really those four faces of love and, and and working them, that has been my journey. Yeah, thanks for asking. It's important, and self forgiveness is is definitely an is an act of self love. And you know what else I want to say about this? We can act as if we don't have to feel like one drop of self love in the moment, but we can pretend. And the mind doesn't mind pretending. It's fine. We can say. You know, I'm not feeling it, but I'm going to do this anyway. Forgiven, 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 forgiven. It's the same way with loving kindness practice. It's still, because we're tuning into true nature, it's still, it still makes a difference. Some of you may know I'm writing a whole book about this. It's going much more slowly than, than I want it to. It's hard to write a book. If any of you've done it, man, deep bows to you. Um, but I'm writing a whole book uh, tentatively titled Be Your Own Best Friend. 
about this process because it's a thing. Okay, anything else? Well, good luck with the book. That's a, a big <laughs> Thank challenge. You. Yes. Uh, oh. Thank you. Well, since we have we have six minutes, which is you know a little period of time, but not enough time for another practice. Um, I would like to sing for you our dedication and merit. So the dedication and merit, you know, we do at the end of every. Buddhist circle or many of them anyway, and, it, and it's where we offer with generosity any good vibes that we've cultivated within or among ourselves for the benefit of all beings, including ourselves. And the Pure Land version of the Dedication of Merit was translated um, from Mandarin into English by Reverend Hung Shur, the abbot of the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and put to music by Lorena McKenna. So I'm going to sing that for you now, except for somebody who's just accidentally um, shared the screen. Kimberly, you've accidentally shared your screen. Okay, wait. Okay, there we go. Every living being, our minds is one and radiant with light. Share the fruits of peace with hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity. May our minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave our grief and pain. May this boundless light meet the darkness of our sacred night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise. Good night. Thank you. Sleep well. Sweet dreams. Thank you. Good night.
Thank you. Thank you, Eve. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eve. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Eve. So sorry about that. I have no idea how I could even get near oh. here. <laughs> Don't yes, worry yeah. about it. <laughs> oh, bananas. What's happening? I'm on mute to tell you that. I'm so sorry. That's Thank totally you for a wonderful talk and meditation. Thank you. Looking forward to your book. I want to buy one. Oh, oh for sure. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.